I would love to have you take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Genesis. And as well, if you would find those sermon notes that are in your bulletin, I am confident that those will be a help to you as well. I have been reminded again this week and today as we come to another in our series about thinking Christianly about all of life, that in taking one topic per Sunday, uh, we are limited by how much can be done or said in one, in one setting. Um, to think Christianly about marriage, my goodness sakes, in 40 minutes is, a, is a quite a task and by its necessity will leave a lot unsaid. Um, but I think that's going to be okay. We want to think Christianly, as you see in your notes there, that involves both biblical content and it involves a Christ-honoring attitude. And I reflect with you that that second little bullet point about the, the necessary tension for Christians today to live faithfully and redemptively in this world, there often is tension in this. Uh, to apply biblical content to a world stepping away from it so quickly and to keep our own hearts and attitudes right in the midst of it is also a challenge, a necessary tension. And of course, there are other things here for you to read. But before we pray together, I I want to go to that little introductory paragraph called today's topic. And I just want to reflect with you on a couple of things. Give you a quote here from Diane Langbird, who is a counselor and author of some uh, decades of experience. She's not writing this fresh out of, of, of college But she says this, marriage is designed and intended by God to be a union that bears fruit of many kinds and changes the world. Marriage is a living parable, an illustration in the flesh, telling the world how much God loves his people and giving them a clear picture of how that love is demonstrated. And I mention here, my goodness sakes, this this paragraph, one would think, comes straight out of a book on marriage, right? Uh, But no, It comes from this handy little book, uh, Suffering and the Heart of God. And even more telling, it comes from the beginning of a chapter entitled, Understanding Domestic Violence. Now, why, why would a lady writing a book on suffering say things about marriage? Hmm. Well, I haven't read the book yet. It's on my to-read list. I'll get to it quickly, I think. But a number of things that have been on my mind as we've come to today, people present, people joining us online, I am so aware that in marriage, in this most intimate of relationships, for many, there is a, a great joy attached to this. There have been years and years of faithfulness to God and faithfulness to one another and so much to be thankful for. Many of us have had maybe grandparents in our lives who were married since at least Adam and Eve or before. It just seemed like they were always, I mean, there they were. And you just think, man, it it should always be like that. And in our audience as well are many I know who, who, who are hurting in relation to marriage. Some for whom marriage has been a source of of difficulty. I've heard it said, partly in jest, I've been married for 40 years and they've been 25 of the happiest years of my life. Uh, I've heard people say that. And those who are married don't shake it off so quickly. They know what is meant. Uh, Some who are married today um, know the difficulty of staying married. It's not hard to get married. 
but staying married. And I'll say this as well. I am aware, I know this, that there are, that there are some who are listening to us who are not married for one reason or another who wish they were. I'm aware of that. And I know that there are some listening or present who are married. I'm going to say it and wish they weren't. Things that we carry maybe publicly and everybody knows it who knows us or things that we struggle with internally and probably nobody knows it. Interesting. So today we come to the word of God and we open the scriptures and we come before the Lord and we say, Father, point us to you. And so that's my prayer today, that this big, diverse audience here present and, my goodness, scattered abroad, that we together would come to the word of God and here be not only challenged, but encouraged, encouraged, encouraged by his presence with us. I think, I think God will do that. But let me, let me pray for us. Would you join me as we do that? Father, I so thank you for the privilege of this rhythm in the life of a congregation of opening the word of God together and here being fed and encouraged and having that, that sense of true north reestablished in a world where, where the, the compass just seems to be all over the place. No true north. And our Father, in you there is that. There is not only a truth, but the truth. You are the source of right. You are the one who calls out wrong. And you alone are the one, our Father, who knows each of us and knows the inner workings of our hearts and our longings the things that are satisfied and the things that are not. And so, Father, we bring all of that to you today and we say on this topic, would you help us and inform us and shape us wherever we are today as individuals in relation to this this business of marriage? Help us now in Jesus' name, amen. So if you have your sermon notes handy, uh, I'd just like to look with you, the the, kind of the map where I would like for us to go. Um, There are two sections on your sermon notes. This first one called what is marriage and why did God create it? And here, as I invited you to come with me to Genesis one and two, there are a number of comments I want to make about marriage. Uh, six, in fact, three on this page, three on the other. And some of these are things that if you are experienced in the word of God and you've been around a church for a while, you will, you will quickly say, yes, I knew that. And I'm, I'm thrilled in that. I hope your heart finds resonance with it. Others of us who are perhaps newer in the word of God, newer to the family of God, these might be newer things. And uh, wonderful to have uh, that, that range in our listening audience. And then the second section, some comments about what does marriage mean? And some theological elements here that, that again, rich streams I can just barely touch on today due to time. But I want to, I want to introduce and, and then we want to talk together about responding to God's word here. But that's what I want to do today. But, but walking with you then through Genesis 1 and 2... Uh, is where I would like to, where I'd like to begin. Uh, Genesis 1.1, of course, uh, really a significant verse in the Bible. It, it, it's the beginning, it's the foundation, it lays a lot of groundwork, as the name of the book implies, Genesis, the book of beginnings. And we read Genesis 1.1, of course, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is, he spoke into being, uh, out of, into what was nothing, he called into being what was. God spoke, the psalm writer says, and the worlds began. Can you imagine creating out of nothing? And then, then begins God calling into being one thing after another, uh, light and separating and so on, darkness and water and animals and plants and filling the earth. And then you come down to verse 26, where we move from those, uh, the other elements of creation to the creation of people, humans, all right? So I'm going to read 26 to 28 and a number of things that are here. 
We read this in God's word. Then God said, let us make man in our image. The term man here is thinking mankind. It is not mankind in maleness at this point. The term is used of mankind made up of both genders. Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Okay, I'm gonna stop at that point. Several things I would like to chat with you about. This book of beginnings and this this description of humanity and God creating is intended by God to be more than a description of something that happened a long time ago. It isn't just that. It's not just a book of history. I would describe it here, as the fill-in would suggest on your sermon notes, as a charter for humanity. In the book of beginnings, there is that. It It is intended to be a plan and I would give an, some examples of that. I give you two texts that are here. One of those is a, is a conversation Jesus was in, of course, thousands of years after creation, Matthew 19, where he has asked some specific things pertinent to that day about marriage. And to give an answer, Jesus frames it by saying, haven't you read in the beginning? He goes back to Genesis 1 and 2 and says, well, what does the word of God say? That is, he's appealing to this text, not just to say, well, a long time ago, there's this cool story. He didn't say that. He said, to establish the issue of the day, did you read Genesis 1 and 2? Similarly, the Apostle Paul, 1 Timothy 2, in discussing gender roles and gender application in the church, what was for him, the modern day church, uh, he appeals to Genesis 1, 2, and actually 3 to make his theological point. Both Jesus and Paul saying, theological discussion, well, didn't you read the charter? Didn't you read the constitution? Didn't you read Genesis? And they root their argument in the book of beginnings. So for those who would say, yeah, but that's an old book. Oh, hold on there, Tiger. No, not just an old book. It's a charter for what God intended the human race to look like. So I think that's significant. Now, in this particular text, verse 26 and, and following that we just read, image of God. Oh, dear people, please get this. We live in a world... You know this. You watch TV, you watch movies, you hear people talk about uh, nature and so on. You hear people say, uh, talk about humans as the human animal. And they talk about all these different animals, say, well, there's this animal, this, and then there's the human animal. Hold on. I hate that language. I understand that we eat and breathe and dogs eat and breathe. Uh, Humans are not just a higher level of animal. No, no. In the Bible, we see very clearly humans, male and female, created in the image of God something very, very special, something unique. And you know it. And I believe everybody in our culture, though they might deny it, they know it as well. Romans 1, 2, and 3. The word of God, the truth of God written on their hearts. Here, let me give you an example. People drive down the road. They may be creationists or evolutionists. Here on the side of the road, Mr. Squirrel had a bad day. What do they do? They slam on the brakes and go, oh, no. We've had an accident. No, they just go, uh, sorry. They don't even notice the crows are there. And they go, eh. But if they were driving down the road and there was a human on the side of the road, rightly, they would slam on the brakes and say, get help. 
There's a, there's a difference between Mr. Squirrel or anything else that you have happened to run over and probably didn't even stop. Shame on all of you. <laughs> you know there's a difference. And if you hit a person on a bike or a car, you stop and you render aid and you say, oh no, are you? Because we know there's something different. I think that's just wired in our hearts and we're right to notice that there's a difference. No, humans are made in the image of God. Theologians write reams about this. It's a really big deal. Image of God, his mark. No, not just smarter animals, not just the top of the food chain. Image of God, something special. So when you treat anybody uh, a certain way in culture and society, you you are interacting with a person made in the image of God. Maybe they behave poorly. Guess what? Image of God. Maybe they've committed murder. They're about to be executed. Guess what? Image of God. Value as a person. Messed up? Yeah, got it. Image of God. So don't, don't let that slip. Now, in this text, several things. People who write about Christian worldview and about the Bible and so on often talk about this as the cultural mandate. That's a term you might come across. It's referring to this. Uh, given dominion. It doesn't mean dominion to ruin it. No, dominion is stewards, and it's given to humanity, and I'm going to call it out, to male and female alike are both given here. You, you, it's very clear in the text. God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. So even as there are gender roles described in the Bible, there are also great commonalities of worth and value between male and female Now, God does not blush as he describes male and female, neither here nor in chapter 2, nor anywhere else in the Bible. There's not a place where God places greater value on male or female. In both cases, he says, I made a male, what a wonderful thing. And I created a female, what a wonderful thing. And God doesn't say, oh, sorry, awkward, not at all. The creator has never been awkward about his creation, and he gives equal value to both male and female. I think that should be called out as well. How good, how good of God. Now, put on your study sheet here, crown of God's creation. Absolutely, he gave dominion to them both. I turned the page. I wanna keep working through the text, all right? We mentioned some of these things last week as we talked about spheres of authority or spheres of sovereignty, and we, we come again. So the text unfolds in Genesis 1 down through chapter 2 and verse 3 where there's a bit of a shift in chapter 2, verse 4, even, the, even Hebrew calls it out. Uh, these are the generations of. There's a rhythm in the book of Genesis, 10 of these uh, phrases that call out new sections, and here is one. But Genesis 2, then verse 4, there is what I call color commentary. Verse 7, God creating Adam, Adam. The Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Man became a living creature. What a wonderful moment. Now, before Eve shows up, I mentioned that for a reason, uh, you see down in verse 17, God giving to Adam uh, the moral order of the garden. He does that right on the heels, as we mentioned last week, of God giving him work to do. Uh, But here, then the moral order of the garden, don't do this. There's something not to do. Do this, don't do this. This would be good, this would be bad. I call that the moral order of the garden. There were no speed limit signs. A whole lot of other laws weren't there. Just that, don't eat from that tree. Any other questions? So moral order. Now, verse 18, I want to touch here for a couple minutes. The Lord God said to Adam, Adam being alone then, it is not good. First thing in the Bible, not good. It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper 
suitable for him. Now, stop for a moment. Some of us raised uh, Old King James, and we're familiar with the term help meet. Now, it's not one word. Sometimes you see it written. I would say carelessly as one word, unless I can be proven otherwise. Help, stop, meet. Meet, Old English, that means suitable for. So a help or a helper, suitable for. Now, I want to, I want to talk about that word helper for a minute. Uh, in our culture, the term is used differently than in the Bible. Hate to tell you. I'm going to blow it right out of the water, okay? Uh, if you're in a typical office or job site or any other place today, suppose someone is hired as the helper. You're the helper. Now, what does that mean? Well, I don't know. You're going to make copies, uh, make coffee, make more coffee, uh, stay out of the way, and, you know, the rest of us are going to do the real work. And we would never say that that's the way some people have viewed women or wives, but I think at times so. I'm going to make a helper for Adam, the little woman. We pat her on the head. And I'm just saying this. What a violation of the text. I'll go to the Hebrew word, if you will. The Hebrew word that's used here for helper, what it is, is insignificant to us. But I'm saying this, throughout the Old Testament, it is most used of, of God who comes to the aid of one who needs help. Easy, yeah. <laughs> if anyone ought to be awkward with the term helper, it is the man not the woman. No awkwardness needed, of course, because this is the creator speaking. God looks at Adam alone in the garden. Here he is, wonderful place. It's not good for Adam to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Now, I spell it out there. Uh, this, uh, my description, a person of strength and ability and resource who comes to, to the aid of one who, if he's smart, will be aware of the helper that God has provided as a person of strength, ability, and resource. So ladies, beat the drum, memorize those terms. Strength, ability, and resource. Yes, in fact, this is you. The Hebrew term for helper is frequently, frequent, most frequently used. For God himself, it is not a subtle put down to women. Uh, one example of this, Psalm 121, which says, I will lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Yes. That's the cry of a person who needs help and says, oh God, meet me. You are my helper. Why would you ever, at that moment, you wouldn't be praying that if you didn't know you needed help. If you didn't need a helper. I will lift up my eyes to the hills. Oh God, meet me here. Help me now. Help me. God is the helper. This is not a put down. It's, it's, it's aligning uh, a wife, in this case, with the person who comes to Adam with strength, ability, and resource that he should, he should notice to, 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 uh, to come side by side with him. This is a wonderful text and worthy of much more here. Now, what happens in the very next verse? He's, God says this to, uh, to Adam, and, and then God brings all the animals. Now, I'm going to have a little bit of Pastor Jay fun here with you. you. You know how this works. But God says, Adam, it's not good that you be alone. I'm going I'm to make a helper just for you. And here come the animals. This is by design. This is not a mistake. So I'm picturing Adam saying, great, 
today I, 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 man, this is going to be great. I'm going to meet one made just for me. And then here come the giraffes. Now, we're not told the names that God gives them. Or God gives them. Adam gives them. My suspicion, again, this is my, 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 my way I think. I'm picturing Adam naming them things like, here come the giraffes. Not a chance. That's my name. Uh, here come the hippopotami. Is that what you call them? Hippopotamuses? Well, I don't know either, but th- those. I suspect he's going, nah, nope, too tall. I don't think so. Um, forget it. Uh, nice try. I'm guessing that those are the names of all the animals as they come by. And it's by design because all the animals come by. He names them all. Forget it. Pretty ugly. I don't know. They all come. They all come. And it says it. It's right here in the Bible. It's verse 20. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. See, God, God pressed on this so that Adam would look and say, well, apart from the intervention of God, there's no hope. No animals. Nope. And then God, only then, does God do this amazing work so described by creating Eve from, from Adam, uh, not from his feet, as you've heard the poem said, not from his feet that he would be over here, uh, not from his head lest she be over him, by his side that she would be next to him near his heart, that he would love her under his arm, that he'd protect her. You've heard that perhaps. Some, perhaps uh, we're not told all the meaning of that, but those may be some of the meanings behind. Adam then says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, she'll be called woman. She was taken out of man. Wonderful. Now, now God is the one who brings this first wife, this wife for Adam, Verse 24, then, a man shall leave his father and mother. Therefore, it says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Verse 25, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And I take that, I think, on good biblical grounds to be more than physical nakedness because there's more than one way to be vulnerable, isn't there? I think this is describing a relationship that maybe you've experienced, maybe you have not, where of, of, of vulnerability and, and oneness on all kinds of different levels. I think that's God's plan. But verse 24, as we mentioned last week, clearly intended to be a pattern. Therefore, God says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother. Neither of Adam nor Eve had a father or mother. And it would appear then from the text here that there's something weightier going on. And of course, as we've mentioned already, that shows up. We'll see it again as we make a couple stops in other texts. This verse is used by Bible writers to say, God did something special here. Now, um, a pattern then, if you look at your sermon notes, a pattern for years to come, yes, indeed. Now, marriage, this next little section, marriage as God designed it is a covenant, not simply a consumer agreement. I want to talk about this for a minute, okay? Because you and I live in a world where marriage is viewed as a consumer agreement, not a covenant, what do I mean by that? Okay, you buy a car. How long do you keep the car? Yeah, now I'm not just saying, you know, husbands and wives are cars, but I'm just asking. It's a consumer. You keep the car until, what is it? Yeah, it kind of wears out. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah, it wears out. The transmission starts making some funny noise. Uh, it starts to be too expensive. There's all kinds of things that indicate when it's a consumer, you say, okay, uh, new, new couch, new car. New house. You keep things as long as it works for you. And we live in a world that treats marriage like that. And uh, I want to I push on that just a little bit here with you because the Bible portrays marriage as different than that. 
And I want to read from um, just a, a few lines from Tim Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage, which I gave to uh, four young ladies in my house one Christmas. And I said, you read it, all of it, please. This is the closest thing to your daddy's voice that you're ever going to hear. So please read this. Um, and in a chapter entitled The Essence of Marriage, Tim Keller says this. Years ago, I attended a wedding in which the couple wrote their own vows. He's not against that. If you did, that's fine. But, but they said something like this. I love you and I want to be with you. And the moment I heard it, I realized that all historic Christian marriage vows, uh, something they all have in common, regardless of their theological and denominational differences, the people I, were list- I was listening to were expressing their current love for each other. That was fine and moving, but that is not what marriage vows are. That's not how a covenant works. Wedding vows are not a de- declaration of present love, but a mutually binding promise of future love. A wedding should not be primarily a celebration of how loving you feel now. That can be safely assumed. But rather in a wedding, you stand before God and your family and the main in- institutions of society, you promise to be loving, faithful, and true to the other person in the future, regardless of undulating internal feelings or external circumstances. So we say, he would say, for better or worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part, or something like that. There is a richness and value in those phrases that goes beyond, you make me feel so good today, or really the fun one, you complete me. Don't get me started. I have, hopefully you didn't say that. If you said that at your wedding, um, I forgive you, but don't tell me. Just don't tell me. (laughs) I have a strong visceral reaction. You mean before you got married? What, were you half a person? No, I don't think so. No, you were a whole person before you're God. So don't give me this completion thing. You're not a jigsaw puzzle. Stop it. Well, anyway, I'm fine. (laughs) Similarly, (laughs) too much fun. Similarly, another book on marriage in the riveting chapter entitled Staying Married is not about staying in love. Let's let that percolate for a minute. Uh, this, This writer says, staying married, therefore, is not mainly about staying in love. It's about keeping covenant till death do us part or as long as we both shall live as a sacred covenant promise, the kind Jesus made to his bride. Well, these are things to think about. We live in a culture steeped in uh, consumer agreements. It doesn't work out, get rid of it. Now, I know, I know, I'm aware, I'm aware of life and things that break. Oh, am I aware? And the difficulty of, of all of this. And what do you do when it comes apart? I get it. So stay with me, all right? More on some of those broken elements in a few minutes. But we're under the heading of what is marriage and why did God create it? So, so there's, there's a place to begin. On your sermon notes then, uh, a couple more elements here and we'll, we'll move on. Marriage was given to the human race for our collective good, the glory of God in us, for our good, ultimately part of God's common grace to believer and unbeliever alike. And I ask then, who then ultimately has jurisdiction over marriage? Come on. Yes, who called it into being? Who defined it? Who said, Adam, Eve, together, cleaving to one another. I liken this to to, to plywood, you know, stuck together. What happens if you try to pull plywood apart? What happens? Yeah, it tears, doesn't it? It tears something fierce. There's a reason. It wasn't intended to be torn apart. 
Some of you know profoundly the rending, the rending, either through death or divorce or some other painful situation where there's a rending of flesh from flesh. You know firsthand the, the tearing of heart and emotion and the bruise, profound bruise. I know you know. I know you do. And as much as I could say, well, I wish it wasn't like that. No, no, I wish it wasn't that way for you. But there is a, there is a rightness. It, 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 it's like cutting off your left arm. Shouldn't it hurt a little bit? Well, yeah. And so pulling apart what God intended to be together. Yeah, I know. I know it hurts. And it, I'm so glad it hurts. It's, it means it's something valuable. It's being pulled apart. It wasn't intended to be pulled apart. So I know, I do know. All right, what does marriage mean? Some brief comments here. So much more could be said, but I want to touch on a couple of things. I want to, I want to go to 1 Kings 8, which is not a text on marriage at all. It's a text about God, okay? I'm after one thing in this text. Because marriage is intended to teach us truth. It is not just intended to keep you happy. I know that's a rough statement, but it's true. Marriage as, a, as an institution was created by God for our good, yes, for his glory, absolutely, and to teach us truth about what God is like. So in 1 Kings 8, this is, the, this is a text about Solomon dedicating his temple. It's a glorious, magnificent scene. Solomon's glorious temple, amazing in its, in its um, wealth and gold and oh, so much. And he's going to pray a very, very long prayer as he dedicates this temple to God, but he begins by a description of God that I think is telling and relates to marriage. Solomon, verse 22, stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, spread out his hands toward heaven and said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or earth beneath, keeping, what is it? Keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. This is one text among many where God is described as a covenant-keeping God. And the call is for us in our marriages to mirror the covenant-keeping God by keeping covenant as well. Did you know that? It's intended to teach us something about God. Now, uh, I mentioned already, you see the texts that are listed there under this section, Matthew 19, verse 6. Uh, that's a discussion of what breaks a marriage and so on. And Jesus, of course, includes in his discussion, he builds it on, on Genesis 2, verse 24. People are asking, what breaks a marriage? And you can read that in Matthew 19. That's a whole other sermon or sermon series. But he asks, what breaks a marriage? I'd like to go to Ephesians 5. verses 22 to 33, this classic text on marriage, if you will. Uh, this section, of course, read often, and I, as I pick it up at verse 22, I am aware that I'm stepping into the middle of a longer uh, argument, so to speak, presentation about being imitators of God that begins at chapter 5, verse 1 in the gospel. If you went back to chapter 1, um, so it's hard to know where to break in, but I'm picking it up at verse 22 for a number of reasons. But in these verses now, uh, often as we read this kind of a text, we, you know, wives kind of poke our husbands at certain points, and husbands, we poke our wives at certain points and say, yeah, pay attention, I told you, things like that. You know, there's that word, submit. Uh-huh, honey, there you go. Yeah, don't do that today. That'll make you look very poor uh, in your relationship. 
But here's the thing. The text is about wives, husbands, and there's another person here, Christ. And often we read this to say, wives, there's your job, three verses. Husbands, there's your job, nine verses. Oh, wait a minute. Why does he talk longer to husbands? How come he says it three or four times longer? Okay, you mull that over. Um, but I want, you, I want as I read this, I'd like you, please, to focus on Christ, okay? Focus on what Christ does, not just what the husbands and wives are supposed to do and, and do poorly, but read it about Christ. So I read in starting verse 22, look for what Jesus does. Hear God's word. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. So you should ask that, of course. How is Christ the head of the church? What's that look like? Christ is the head of the church. How does he lead? How does he lead the church? Christ is the head of the church, his body. He is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives. How? 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 As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. May I say, husbands, if you live into verse 25, I have a hunch that the first three verses to wives aren't going to be too much of a struggle for her. You might think about that. He gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, that is, grow her in holiness, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that, a purpose here, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, having spot, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she would be holy and without blemish. That is the job of the husband to nurture, somehow, to nurture his wife, to help her grow. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as they do, in fact, implication of the text, as they do, in fact, love their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, indeed. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast, that is, cleave, Genesis 2.24, to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and Paul says, I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So, so marriage then, as you have on your study sheet in front of you, marriage is intended to teach us theological truth about the relationship between Christ and the church. The church is called the bride of Christ, Christ the perfect bridegroom. Listen, the bridegroom who never fails. It isn't just about remembering birthdays and anniversaries. If those, were, if those only were the flaws, right? Don't say it out loud. If that's it, hey, I'll buy my own set of, you know, my own flowers. Uh, no, no, it isn't about that, really. Christ is the perfect bridegroom. He is. So husbands, we keep our eyes on him and say, oh God, help me to live into that. Help me, help me. The one who keeps all his promises calls the church to live into her glorious beauty, even in her current imperfection. Points to the gospel. Marriage points to the gospel, points to the relationship of Christ to the church. We who should be responding to Christ, following him, Christ who leads us, oh, not with a whip, never saying, because I told you so, do what I say or else. Christ never controlling us by anger, never, never controlling us by door slamming or threats. Christ never putting his finger in our face and saying, do it my way because, ever. No, Christ responding to the church, the church, the bride of Christ. And I'm saying this today, 
as we think about marriage and thinking theologically about marriage, marriage isn't just about you figuring out a way to be happy. It's a picture of what God is like in its original creation and what God is like to us in its ongoing uh, relationship to him. Oh, man. So what do we do here? Several things. Hearing, responding to God's word. First, may I say it, marriage by its design teaches profound truth about God and even in its many human imperfections, we see the gospel illustrated. We're confronted by our deep need for Christ. Um, One of the books that I think is the top four on marriage that I've come across is this one. I've referred to it before, Dave Harvey's book, When Sinners Say I Do, and he has this amazing chapter. You already know the answer to it when I tell you. It's called, this chapter is called Waking Up with the Worst of Sinners. What, what's he talking about? Who is that? Who, who is that? Oh, Lord, it's me. It's me. This is a chapter that says, okay, come on now. Fess up. Quit, quit calling out all the mistakes of the other person. Let's talk about yours. Waking up with the worst of sinners. And this, this is my point here under this section. You know the old song. Marriage, marriage if it does anything, it'll teach you to sing that. I need thee, oh, I need thee. I use this John 15 text often in marriage ceremonies, wedding ceremonies, because I like to point out the relationship of Christ to the vine. We're the, we're the, he's the vine, we're the branches, and Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And so we sing and say and pray, I need you, Lord. I need you. Every hour, I need you. I do. When a broken world violates God's pattern for marriage, does it? Yes. We need not be surprised or angry at the people involved. Sometimes Christians spend more of their time yelling about gay marriage than working on their own. I understand. I understand the problems in our world, uh, none of which I think are surprising, but it's what happens when people ignore the God who designed marriage. So rather than being shocked, angry, and going on a crusade to fix the world, though you can work on the world, uh, perhaps in greater humility, you should work on you and making sure that you are the best picture of marriage the world's ever seen. That's a thought. Far easier to yell at other people. No, don't worry. I'm not in favor of all that other stuff. I know. I just know I can't fix that. So you bring it right back in and say, what can we do? When you speak about marriage or your spouse or about men or about women, how do you talk? When the ladies get together and you go, oh, well, my husband. Okay, what do you say? Men are so, or men, when you get together, what do you say about women? (sighs) You know how wives are. Is that what you say? Do you? Way to be an edifier then, tongue in cheek. That's not how we talk. That's not how we talk. No. And what if your marriage breaks? What if it breaks and it comes apart? And what if it's broken and it doesn't come apart and you're still in it? What do you do? Folks, this is the gospel. What do you do when something breaks? Here, here, you, you pick up the pieces, the broken parts, and you come to Jesus and you say, here's the, here's the broken parts. You don't just say, no, 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 everything's fine. I got this. You say, oh, dear God, pretty broken. Would you help meet me here? 
This is why Jesus died on the cross. Sometimes our marriages break and they don't go back together. I know. Such pain and heartache and bloodshed. Oh. Sometimes they're together in name only. And other people know it or maybe nobody knows it. We bring those broken pieces to the Lord. And we say, Father, help me here. Heal what's broken now or maybe ultimately in heaven. But here are the broken parts. These are the reasons Jesus died. I want to pray for us. Much more could be said in all those areas, but that's just a bit. Would you stand with me, please, as we close our time in prayer? Hmm. Father, I thank you so much for uh, this audience, those present in the room and those listening another time, another place, or even at this moment elsewhere. I pray for your hand in us, Lord, that you would encourage us because you are the one who never fails. Even as we see difficulty and failure in our own lives, maybe it's us or another near us. Oh, Father, we're captured by that, but point us to you, the only one who truly can heal broken hearts and broken lives. We bring them to you. Point us to Christ in the gospel. Give us hope and healing because of the cross of Jesus. I pray, Father, whatever the burdens are of this crowd today, that you would encourage us by pointing us to you, the one who never fails. Thank you for keeping your promises. And we give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a good week. We'll see you very, very soon.